Welcome to Learn Buddhism. I'm Alan Pido. For this second episode on the different branches, traditions, and schools of Buddhism, let's dive into Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana is sometimes called the Great Vehicle and is practiced in the East Asian and Central Asian countries. Now, the path in Mahayana is what's called the path of the Bodhisattva towards full awakening as a Buddha. So there's a belief that all sentient beings have what's called Buddha nature. This is the inner capability and qualities to become a Buddha, just like the Buddha of our era, Shakyamuni Buddha, Gautama Buddha. So all of us can achieve what he did. Now, bodhisattvas can either be enlightened or unenlightened beings. And we'll talk more about that later on. But you and me could be considered unenlightened bodhisattvas if we're on this path. So that's considered a good thing inside Mahayana. That means you're on this path of the bodhisattva towards enlightenment and towards becoming a Buddha. Why do we have this? Well, this is mirroring the path of the Buddha of our era, Shakyamuni Buddha or Gautama Buddha. He was on this long path of becoming a Buddha through this bodhisattva path. We also see this bodhisattva path inside Theravada Buddhism to a different degree. So inside Theravada, it's recognized that there are bodhisattvas and there's a bodhisattva path, but it's usually recognized for only exceptional beings, such as those have been predicted by a living Buddha to be a Buddha in the future. And that's the case of the Buddha of our era, Gautama Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha. This path is important for Mahayana, and it's a defining quality because becoming an arhat, like inside Theravada, is considered not the end inside Mahayana. Even though in Theravada, is taught that when you reach enlightenment, you become an arhat, that enlightenment is no different than the Buddha, just like the Buddha said. Mahayana says, not so fast. What they're saying is, in the Mahayana view, the Buddha was using something known as skillful means to help people, but becoming an arhat doesn't end that journey, and one must eventually become a Buddha to achieve full awakening. And generally the reasoning here is that there's still some what's called remainders, even on an arhat that's achieved that high level of enlightenment, said to be a non-returner. There's still something there. It's not that complete, full awakening enlightenment like a Buddha. Even though that's taught that way inside Theravada, Mahayana is just taking a different look at that and saying, we have to go on this bodhisattva path to become fully awakened, this pure, complete, total enlightenment as a Buddha. That is the only real path right there. That's the only real way. If you want to be outside the circle of birth and death, news for you, according to Mahayana, that's not going to happen that way. You have to be on this bodhisattva path. So all that being said, becoming an arhat is revered inside Mahayana. So it's not looked at if you are an arhat, oh, that's not the same as a bodhisattva. It's actually still revered inside Mahayana. That's looked at as a very advanced state. That's very challenging, very difficult to get to that particular level, that state. However, they're saying it just means that 
they will likely need to continue on on this bodhisattva path. And they'll probably continue on as a bodhisattva. So we'll talk more about this when we get into more of the details about Mahayana. But for Mahayanas, what they're looking at here as far as their path is going to be the bodhisattva path and to train as a bodhisattva on this path, not as an arhat, but as a bodhisattva, because their goal is to become a Buddha, not just an arhat, even though that's an advanced state. So an arhat, and if you're trained as one, it's looked at, yes, you can become an arhat, but you would just continue on in this particular path. You may not know it, and we'll talk more about this later on, but you're going to continue on past being an arhat, likely going to be a bodhisattva, continuing on. Now, the practice of one on this bodhisattva path is going to be what's called the paramitas or perfections. So there are six of these paramitas or perfections in Mahayana, which one focuses on. And when perfectly understood and executed, those are the perfections, the qualities of an enlightened person, such as a bodhisattva or a Buddha. And so this is going to be the practice, trying to perfect those. And when you're doing that through all the different practices, rituals, studying, all these different things, that's helping you perfect these six perfections. And just like it says, when all those are perfected, that's an enlightened being, enlightened. These six perfections take on a more prominent role for practitioners in Mahayana than we might see with the Eightfold Path inside Theravada. And the reason is these six perfections essentially contain what's inside the Eightfold Path. But just like I explained, these are the qualities needed to be an enlightened being. This is the perfections, the qualities of an enlightened person, but specifically one on the Bodhisattva path. So Mahayana is the path of the Bodhisattva going towards enlightenment. So this is going to be the focus, the path right there. Not the Eightfold Path, but the Six Perfections. Doesn't mean the Eightfold Path is disregarded or not looked at, but the Six Perfections are more conducive to that particular path. Still contains those elements of the Eightfold Path essentially inside them, because what we're looking at here, again, is the qualities the perfections of an enlightened person. So this is not, in my opinion, not only a practice, but a motivation to be on the bodhisattva path. It is constantly reminding you what those perfections are of an enlightened being, a bodhisattva, a Buddha. So you have this very clear picture of what the end state is, what the end goal is. Now, Theravada, also has perfections, and there are 10 of them. So instead of the six we have inside Mahayana, there are 10 inside Theravada. While they're not used in the same way as they're used inside Mahayana, we can see how these perfections in general may have been widespread between all these different Buddhist schools inside ancient India. So there's lots of sharing of knowledge and understanding. So we can probably see there was a common core element between Theravada and Mahayana in some way as it relates to the perfections. So where did Mahayana come from? If we look at original Buddhism, the Buddha taught the path of arhatship. He had disciples, listeners, right? 
become an arhat, become enlightened there. In Mahayana, it states that the time for the Mahayana teachings or these advanced teachings were not ready when original Buddhism, when the Buddha was alive and him when he was teaching. It was only centuries after his death or his Parinirvana that the conditions began to ripen that was right for Mahayana teachings to be revealed to the world. So I like to kind of give you a visualization here or analogy of this. So imagine either a battlefield medic or an emergency room doctor. You, you take your pick. And this medic or doctor, they are overwhelmed with lots of people with severe injuries and they have to treat them. That's Shakyamuni, Gautama Buddha. That's what he had to do. When he became the fourth Buddha of our era, all the prior teachings were lost. He was starting from scratch. He had lots of essentially sick patients. So what he had to do was treat the primary issue. And so he was teaching his path of arhatship. And that was to get as many people in line as possible to set this, what we call the wheel of the Dharma in motion. He was trying to get it started again, get this established, get it going, just pass to liberation. So this is going to become really important here in a second. But just imagine all these sick patients with all these really severe injuries, right? But they may have also have other conditions, right? But ultimately, why were they injured in the first place? Like, what's going on here? What's going to be the end state for all of them? So he was trying to treat those primary conditions. But if we kind of look at the Mahayana portion of this, well, okay, so he treated those primary conditions, right? But what if they go get injured again? Or what about the recovery period or everything else, right? So Mahayana is saying, yes, we need to help you primarily this emergency situation. That's where we saw what the Buddha did. The conditions were not right then to go, I see that you have the severe injury, but let me tell you how to do a whole body that you're going to be just healthy and perfect and all this stuff, right? That's not right. The Buddha had to te do this emergency field surgery, if you will. He had to do these emergency life-saving measures. And of course, I'm using a medical analogy here, but you can see he had many sick patients. Sick was dukkha and not understanding dependent origination and rebirth and all these other concepts and permanence all these different things. So he was starting from scratch. So if the Buddha was going to be all intellectual and go with advanced teachings, he probably would have had a, a big struggle on his hands. So the path of the Bodhisattva was not the right time for that during original Buddhism. And it wasn't the right time for it for a while. So it had to, and this core element of what we have with Mahayana now existed then. It wasn't really like it was separate or not known about, but it wasn't practiced in that way. So these core elements that we may be talking about in Mahayana now, it was really existing from the beginning, but it wasn't a time to really go into that deep dive with them. It's almost like if you're in elementary school and someone comes in, let me teach you some college level advanced teachings. That's not the right time for it. We got to start where we're at. So the actual developments and origins of Mahayana. We're never really going to know all the details of that. So I'm kind of giving an analogy of like where the Buddha was in, I would say, in his mindset. Of course, we're talking about 2,600 years ago. I'm just extrapolating here. But the actual developments of our modern day Mahayana branch 
we're, we're likely never going to know that. And just because the history of Buddhism in general, we have gaps and holes and we don't really know everything. There wasn't a written tradition inside Buddhism for centuries. It was orally recited by the monastics. There wasn't really a thought like, yeah, we better write this down. No one really thought that. It wasn't until centuries later on, they're like, maybe we should start doing this, right? So all these different schools of uh, Buddhism in ancient India, they started to write down their, their scriptures. Well, now we have the only complete canon written down with the Pali canon inside Theravada, but these other schools, they also had it as well. That's just the only surviving one. But the other ones, they found those scriptures, the written down scriptural canons, going off to East Asia, and I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second, but that's where we see a lot of that inside the Chinese canon, also going up to Central Asia, like for example in Tibet. So we're seeing that these written accounts were spreading as well. Now we don't have a complete scriptural canon from any of those ancient Buddhist schools in ancient India. The only one that exists is the one that we find in the Pali canon, but we find a good chunk of it in some of these schools inside our existing traditions. But we don't have a written history or historian, for example, writing down, here's how Mahayana started, or all these different things. We have bits and pieces, and we have some good ideas for uncovering new things. But where I'm going with this, we're never going to be able to say, this is exactly how it started, or this is exactly what occurred. We're not going to be able to do that. And no one's going to be able to tell you that with a 100% certainty. What we do know is that these Mahayana beliefs and teachings and practices and ideas were likely shared between a lot of these different Buddhist schools and they're picking up in popularity. So we see this intermingling, the sharing of information. It's one of the, the key defining aspects of Buddhism in general. We sometimes look at it in our modern world as these separate schools and separate branches. Was it really like that in the ancient India was ancient Buddhist schools. You had, of course, different beliefs and practices, but you had sometimes monasteries where you would have what we may now call in our modern world Mahayana Buddhists and other ones who were not. So you get to see some very interesting interaction between monastics back then. They all thought they were part of one big monastic community. They didn't see themselves as separate. They may have different beliefs and maybe disagreements about things, but they never really saw themselves as separate. So the establishment of Mahayana, these scriptures we're seeing, was starting to be developed inside ancient India in the form that we may see nowadays. As I kind of touched on, we start to see pilgrimages and transmission of these different beliefs, not just the sermons of the Buddha we had going back to original Buddhism, the monastic code, analysis, stuff like that in different parts of scriptural canon. Those were being transmitted as well, but we're seeing the transmission of the Mahayana Sutras as well. So that's where it's going to East Asia, hitting China. Then we see it going also into Central Asia with Tibet, for example. And so you're going to see this trans transmission that's helping to establish the thing that we now call Mahayana. There wasn't a Mahayana branch in ancient India, but what we're seeing developed and produced in our modern world is this branch based upon sort of this foundation that was being established in ancient India. So we find this, as I mentioned, in China. So in the Chinese canon of East Asian Buddhism, you're going to find all those sermons of the Buddha. And 
they're going to be the same as you're going to find inside Theravada's Pali Canon because this was what the monastics knew, all these different Buddhist schools. It wasn't the Pali Canons or Theravada's Sermons Insider. This is just what was happening with all these different monastics and all these different schools. Hey, we all know the Sermons of the Buddha. This is what the monastics are saying. They were starting to write them down, and we see the transmission as well. So the difference here is we're seeing that Mahayana Sutras is going to be that key differentiation. Those are also being transmitted to different degrees to East Asia and Central Asia. And this is forming that current branch we have now of Mahayana Buddhism. So let's go into some of the few key elements of Mahayana. And we could talk forever about Mahayana. So I'm going to talk because it's so complex in many different ways and so many different teachings and concepts. But I'm going to talk about just a few key elements of it. Now, first, there are many different schools and with interpretations and practices inside Mahayana. So Mahayana is sometimes called a, the branch of many schools because there's many different ways that is practiced. It's not like maybe inside Theravada where that's one school. Yes, you may have different country-specific practices and interpretations of monastic uh, rules of conduct and code, um, maybe different traditions, right? But it's all one school, one train of thought, if you will, one path, the path of arhatship. But inside Mahayana, it is the path of the Bodhisattva. But you can see very unique ways of practicing this Bodhisattva path. So before I go further, that's what's wonderful about our world right now. We have two major branches, and even though we just have essentially one, in general, school inside Theravada, and we have many different schools inside Mahayana, you got two different paths here, and you got many different teachings and practices and ways to go. So this is essentially, even though we are 2,600 years from the time when a Buddha was alive, and I feel in very much a golden age, of Buddhism because we have all these different teachings, all these different paths and practices, and they're available to you. And so it's a very wonderful thing. So going back to these different schools, interpretations, and practices inside Mahayana, you can kind of envision it this way. Just imagine Mahayana as a big library. And so you got many different teachings inside there. There's many different types of Mahayana sutras, for example, on various different concepts and practices and techniques and beliefs and ideas and all these different things. So these different schools, they are basing their practices, their beliefs based upon this. So it's not like they have to go in there and go, hey, everyone, you have to read this one particular sutra. That's not the case here. You can go to this library and determine what's going to be right for your particular school to help people in your school attain enlightenment. So we may sometimes call this different dharma doors, different ways towards enlightenment, different paths towards enlightenment, but you're still on that bodhisattva path. Now, a key thing before we kind of move on from this particular one topic, Shakyamuni Buddha, also called Gautama Buddha, is still part of Mahayana. We don't negate the Buddha of our era. I'm going to talk more about these different elements, but I think that's a key thing to talk about here before we kind of move on. That Shakyamuni is the Buddha of our era, widely recognized. What we're seeing 
inside Mahayana is that we also have many other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. I'm going to talk about uh, one a little bit later on, Amitama Buddha, but there's many different Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. We're just not restricted, if you will, just to one here. We got celestial Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and there's a, a myriad of different things out there that are going to be able to help us. So as I kind of touched on, our second point here is that Mahayana Sutras take on a larger role. This is because they are conducive to that Mahayana path, which is the path of the Bodhisattva towards full awakening, Buddhahood. So the Buddha in original Buddhism was teaching that Arhat path, right? Not the Bodhisattva path, which would have been considered an advanced teaching. That Bodhisattva path would have been considered an advanced teaching, which wasn't right for the time. And I explained kind of why earlier. We're looking at what the the Buddha was doing back in original Buddhism. He was getting that wheel started, the, the wheel of the Dharma rolling again, right? So I'm going to talk more about why that was so important coming up in just a minute. But these sutras, they are so important to Mahayana, but they also vary greatly in many different topics and even length. There are some that are very short, some are extremely long, but there are all these different bodhisattva path, essentially, sutras to help us. Some can be somewhat easy to understand. Some can be very difficult and challenging to understand. But this is, I'd say, a key defining element of our branch of Mahayana because it says that we have Mahayana sutras in them. And in contrast to Theravada, they do not have the Mahayana sutras. So as I mentioned earlier, you may have all the sermons of the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, between the two branches here. So you have that share between them. You got the Eightfold Path share between them, the Four Noble Truths, Three Marks of Existence. All these different things are shared between Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism. But are these Mahayana sutras are the thing that you don't find inside Theravada because the Mahayana sutras are helping you on that path towards full Buddhahood on that Bodhisattva path, right? And inside Theravada, they're not teaching that as a common practice, they're teaching the practice of the Arhat path. So just different ways of getting towards enlightenment. Now, this doesn't mean that those original sutras are negated. We don't use them, right? We absolutely do. They are foundational, they're important, but more is essentially needed for the Bodhisattva path, more advanced and frankly, direct and specific teachings for that path. So while there are many different sutras out there, there are, for example, the Heart Sutra, Diamond Sutra, Lotus Sutra, Amitabha Sutra, so we got many different sutras out there. Those are popular, but there, there are many. For example, the Heart Sutra, which is a very short but profound sutra, deals with what's called the perfection of wisdom, which is also a key teaching and element in Mahayana. This helps one understand a concept called emptiness, also very foundational inside Mahayana. So fundamentally, what the sutra is doing is helping you understand reality. And while that sounds simple, it's sort of like we have to break, shatter this dirty window, mirror, so you can clearly see. And when that happens, you can become enlightened. This is perhaps the most recited sutra in all of Mahayana. So extremely popular, this Heart Sutra. So third, there's something called skillful means 
that's used widely in Mahayana. So I talked a little about this when discussing arhats and also my analogy of the, the Buddha as like a, a doctor, right? So if we look back at original Buddhism and the Buddha was starting from scratch, I mentioned, you know, bringing the liberating teachings back to the world. And he was like that battlefield medic or ER doctor, right? So according to Mahayana, the teaching of the arhat path, that arhatship path, was to get people to these higher states of, of enlightenment, of attainment, to be on the bodhisattva path. So they weren't being told they were on the bodhisattva path, but this was the Buddha's ultimate objective. So when we look at the sermons of the Buddha, he's telling them, this is the path right here. You can become enlightened. We got different stages for arhats. Let's say you're at that top stage, non-returner. That's what the Buddha is saying. You can find those in the sutras. Mahayana is saying skillful means. So he was speaking in a way to help them. If Again, if he were to go right into the Mahayana teachings, these advanced teachings back then, that would have been extremely challenging. We did not have the foundation. And that foundation, if we're looking at the Mahayana viewpoint of this, and of course I'm taking a very liberal approach with this, they are looking at this that, yes, we have to get this wheel started here, and arhats are important for that, this arhatship path. But the advanced teaching is that those arhats, that's not the end of the path. So it's basically like the Buddha back as a doctor treating these patients, right? He's treating that, for example, that severe injury but he also has to treat other things, but he has to have them focus on that right away, heal this important, critical thing. Then we can get to maybe some other issues that may be existing in your body. So he's trying to triage, prioritize the most important things first. So his goal was essentially expedient, and he did, he did an excellent job on this. Not only did he help with the enlightenment of numerous disciples, he set forth that liberating teaching, that what I mentioned, that turning the wheel of the Dharma in our world again. But skillful means is nothing new. I mean, even the Buddha, uh, outside of my analogy here, he was doing that when he was alive. He would talk to many different people from a farmer up to a king, for example, and he could speak to them in ways that they could understand the concepts, the teachings that he was trying to get across. Extremely skillful in there. That's how skillful means. So you're able to help those understand these different teachings. So we see that in Mahayana. There are many different paths and ways to practice and teach and everything on this bodhisattva path. So we have many different ways to practice and understand the teachings inside Mahayana. Sutras are one of those, but also, just like I mentioned, practices in different ways that teachers will help you get towards enlightenment. Now, fourth, we have something called Prajna Paramita. So this is the perfection of wisdom. So Prajna, wisdom, and Paramita, as we kind of heard before, perfection. So this perfection of wisdom is a little bit, bit, bit different than we might find with wisdom inside Theravada. Here, Mahayana is kind of taking a, a deeper dive and wants to develop insight into emptiness of all conditioned phenomena. So conditioned phenomena inside Mahayana are called dharmas with a lowercase d. Not dharma, like the teachings of the Buddha, but dharmas mean 
all these conditioned phenomena. So you and me are conditioned phenomena, but so are trees and clouds and everything else, right? So it's stating here was this emptiness, and I'm going to be very, very general about all of this. It's stating that all is impermanent and dependent upon causes and conditions. So essentially, they are illusionary in their nature, but we don't see them that way. They're illusionary because they are empty of any true, real, lasting form, if you will, because just like us, we are impermanent, ever-changing, and rise and fall due to causes conditions. So in Theravada, the individual, you, me, is focused on with these five aggregates, right? So we have that inside Mahayana as well. We recognize that this is, you know, tying into that concept of non-self. We are just a temporary group of things. We are impermanent, we are ever-changing, and we arise and fall due to causes and conditions. What's going on in Mahayana? They're saying, let's take a little bit deeper dive here. We're going to take a wide view here. All conditioned phenomena also are marked by this. So this concept of emptiness is going much, much deeper. And I would like to do a whole other episode's completely honest because we're never going to be able to cover this in detail in this short episode. But it's a very fundamental portion of Mahayana. Then we have, well, what are the schools, right? So we got these key concepts here, and the different schools are going to practice them and understand them in different ways. But Mahayana is really this umbrella, if you will. But we have two major regions, if you will, two different types of Buddhism inside Mahayana. There's East Asian Buddhism, and Central Asian Buddhism. And so, just like it sounds, they are regionally distinct. And this is really due to the, that transmission of the teachings going back to ancient India that were spreading, right? So we had a transmission going into China, and there was also a transmission going into Central Asia, and like into Tibet. So even though a lot of teachings were going back and forth, we do see a little bit difference here, but they are both considered Mahayana in the same concept that they are using Mahayana sutras inside there. Do they have different viewpoints and ways? Yes, some are the same, some are different, but we're seeing that there, there are two different forms of Mahayana Buddhism, as far as a Mahayana branch, I should say. So they practice in different ways. There's some similarities, some differences, but you're going to be able to find different schools available to you. So, so while we might just call these different schools, they're really honestly different practices. So we'll start off with one that you may already know of, the meditation school, commonly called Zen as we're used to it because that's the Japanese word for the school inside Japan. But it actually originated in its current form in China. So had Bodhidharma, and we'll talk more about him later on, brought the teachings, is said, to China and just established the, the school inside China. And eventually, China spread this to Vietnam and to Korea, and eventually it came to Japan. So basically, it's kind of intermingled in, not all the time, but in a lot of times, with something called Pure Land Buddhism as well. And I'll, I'll talk more about that school next. But you see it really separated out inside Japan, and we're mostly familiar with that word Zen, because that's a lot of what we see in the West as far as the terminology being used, but it's called different things in the different countries. So when we're looking at this school, it is, of course, focused on meditation. Absolutely. You see it right there in the title of this school. 
They are using different types of skillful means in here, such as riddles a teacher may give you, which may seem nonsensical, but it's all to help you challenge your, your mind and your concepts and to help you with that enlightenment. But I think what's really important to talk about here is it may not be like the Western version of Zen that you see, which may or may not be watered down or a very conditioned way of looking at this school. When we look at it as it's coming from the Asian countries, you have everything there. You're going to have bowing, chanting, sutra recitation, all these different practices that you will probably find in other schools inside Mahayana. Maybe not all of them, but you're going to find it there as well. You sometimes see where that's excluded when it's brought to the West in certain types of maybe Zen centers and stuff like that. But you can also, of course, find, I might say, the authentic uh, version of it. In a lot of different temples, you'll see it practiced that particular way. Not saying one is right or wrong, but you're seeing that all these elements that we see in the other Buddhist schools, yeah, you get to see it here inside what we call Zen as well. Now, another popular school is Pure Land. So this is actually the most popular form of Mahayana Buddhism. It's this pure land practice or school. And in fact, it's probably the most popular as far as all the practitioners in Mahayana. Now, we have many different traditions and schools inside Mahayana, but essentially this practice of pure land Buddhism is very, very popular. So pure lands are also called Buddha fields. And what they do, they provide these perfect conditions or like a training ground to make bodhisattvas and eventually Buddhas. So it's almost like going off to college or university and get these advanced teachings, right? You're in right this perfect place to learn and practice and everything so you can learn this trade, if you will, and go forth, right? Where you may not get that in elementary school, where you got just the basics. Here you're getting that specific training. That's what a pure land is. But specifically, is one where you have a Buddha, a living Buddha, to help train you. Just like when Shakyamuni Buddha, Gautama Buddha, was alive, had a pure land field, a Buddha field around him, we don't have that right now. So people are becoming enlightened, becoming rarer and rarer and rarer. So with pure land, if you can't become enlightened in this life, you can go to this pure land under a living Buddha and practice here. Now, a key thing is here, sometimes this is looked at as like, oh, you're going to like a Buddhist heaven. No, we do have heavenly realms inside Buddhism and also hell realms and everything else. But what we're referring to here is just like I mentioned, a training ground. And so as soon as you're done there, guess what? You're back in the cycle of rebirth. Your goal is still the bodhisattva path inside Zen. The goal is eventually, yes, even then, not just become enlightened and be done with it. It's also to become a bodhisattva and eventually a Buddha. In pure land, become a bodhisattva and become a Buddha. And I think you see my concept here, my, my train of thought that I'm trying to pass on to you. These are all Mahayana schools. So it's the path of the Bodhisattva, the cultivation of that path. So in Pure Land, the goal is to help you more easily obtain this enlightenment. It's like an enlightened Bodhisattva and eventually become a Buddha because that's the goal right there, right? And so we saw this with the uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. He went through countless lifetimes as an, an enlightened Bodhisattva, 
was up it was a Buddha, excuse me, a Bodhisattva in a heavenly realm and was able to decide on his future rebirth in our world as Siddhartha Gautama, and that's where he became the Buddha of our era. So it can be very much the same concept if chosen. So this is a very popular school. Uh, what's really interesting about this one there's many different practices, there's many different traditions for Pure Land, so it's not just like one particular thing, but a very popular practice that's pretty much common be between all of them is this Nyanfo, where you're basically reciting the name of Amitama Buddha. So the most popular Pure Land is going to be that of the Western Pure Land of Amitama Buddha. There's other ones, but this is by far the most popular one inside Mahayana. And so you also get to see how this is also intermingled in a lot of countries like China and Vietnam, where not always, but most of the time you get to see, hey, you know what? What we might call Zen, the meditation school, and Pure Land are kind of intermingled. So you're kind of working on your meditation skills, that practice, but you're also working on, you know what? If that doesn't work out, there's also Pure Land. And also at a deeper level, the viewpoint here is you know what, this Nyanfo, this recitation of Amitama Buddha to be reborn in his pure land is also a meditative practice. So it's very, chanting is a very, and recitation is a very meditative practice on its own. Now it's not the primary purpose of it, but it's also very meditative. Visualizations of Amitama Buddha in his, in his pure land, very much in line with what we see inside Buddhism. But what we also have here is a very interesting concept where you're seeing that your inner Buddha nature is actually that of Amitama Buddha. You're no different than Amitama Buddha, right? And you're seeing that your pure land is actually the pure land of your mind, nirvana. So we can assign these Buddhist concepts that we're used to, like Buddha nature and nirvana, to pure land as well. And this is a very medita meditation school look at pure land when it's intermingled. So very interesting and very in, uh, wonderful practice to actually combine the two of those. But you also have it where it's practiced separately, most notably inside Japan. These are considered separate schools and practiced separately as such. So that's Mahayana. I've covered, even though this may have seemed like a lot I did not cover everything inside Mahayana. It was hard to cram everything into one particular episode. So we're going to have to dive into some other things for Theravada and Mahayana in future episodes as well. But I feel it's a very interesting and wonderful branch of Buddhism. Alongside Theravada, we have two wonderful paths for sentient beings like you and me on our way towards enlightenment. And we also have two wonderful ways between Theravada and Mahayana to look back at what existed, not in original Buddhism per se, because there might be some things we still don't know, but at least in these schools in ancient India, there were many different schools existed back there. We're getting glimpses between the two. With Theravada, we're getting glimpses of a particular school back then. Theravada is a modern school derived from those ancient ancient school back then, but we're seeing inside Mahayana, there were many different Buddhist schools here. A lot of those, we don't have really anything from them, but here we're seeing many different things from those other schools. So we're getting a history lesson and many different insights into how Buddhist thought 
many, many, many years ago, right? Many centuries ago. And we're seeing how it developed into these two wonderful branches that we have today. Do you have any questions about Mahayana? like to hear from you. You can send me a message from my website, alanpito.com. You can reply to this podcast on Spotify, or you can contact me on social media. I look forward to talking with you in our next episode. Thank you.